Let's open our Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul is reading for us a little earlier. And while you're doing that, um, during the funeral yesterday, I, I told the people that it, uh, I didn't believe in coincidences. And um, one of the common things we have at every uh, funeral that we do here is we put in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, on one side of the bulletin and we read the first five verses. And what I told them is um, I believe is that God is into big things and God's into little things. And I think he's even in um, this funeral today because of how I'm going to be tying it into because this morning we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And where we began the funeral was with reading 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So I told the people sitting that I didn't believe that was a coincidence uh, in big things and in little things. I mean, if he's counting the hairs on your head, I think he can work in, in areas like that and go, gee, that's interesting. Is that a coincidence? And then I say, I don't think so. If he can, there's also a scripture coming to mind that um, um, he numbers your tears and he counts them. So every tear you've ever cried, he knows the number of them. One of the great um, items we, we buy when we go to Israel is what's called the tear bottle. And they get the souvenir from that verse that he numbers your tears and he actually counts them. So the Lord is involved with every aspect and detail of our life. I've entitled the morning's message, Do Not Lose Heart. With all the things that are going on in our world today, um, it can be overwhelming. And a lot of people are going through a lot of difficult times right now. And so as we get into these verses Paul is writing to a young church in Corinth. Um, They're immature. They're very prosperous. It was the most prosperous city in Paul's day because of its two ports. Um, They were unmoral. They were unruly when it came to the spiritual gifts. They had no clue. Everything that was being done as I was observing communion this morning and people coming up and then going back and partaking, um, I thought of that scripture. This is being done decently and in order. And that's what 1 Corinthians 14, the very last verse says when it comes to the spiritual gifts. We'll be getting, we've already been there, but that wasn't the case in Corinth. They were very much out of order. And Paul had to give a whole chapter and the use and misuse and abuse of the gift of tongues in a public setting. And so that's basically his audience. I've mentioned this before, uh, Corinth, 700,000 people, two-thirds of which were slaves. Um, What they weren't accustomed to is trials, warfare, spiritual warfare, and suffering. They, they were wealthy. Jesus told the disciples how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? 
Well, because they got a life a lot easier than people that have to have two jobs and, and, uh, or maybe lost their job. And um, life can be easier for a person who is wealthy, causing him not to be as dependent on the Lord as a poor person. Remember the Lord said it's the poor that are rich in faith. They have more of a dependency, a need or of a dependency to trust in the Lord. That is not the case in Corinth. So how does Paul address this? Try to shake him up a little bit and uh, explain what the Christian walk is really all about. So this morning, we're gonna look at three aspects of 2 Corinthians chapter four. I divided it into three, three sections. Number one, Paul's personal history of his own trials and suffering. And I'll warn you ahead of time, I got you flipping back and forth quite a bit. We won't be staying in any particular chapter too long, but we'll be moving around quite a bit. And how this trial and suffering then leads us up to the blessed hope of the rapture, and in particular, the pre-rapture of the church in heaven. I think what's gonna be dispelled this morning is one of the reasons people have a problem with a pre-trib rapture is the argument, oh, you just wanna escape trials and and the troubles, and, and that's the reason that you believe all that. Well, the problem with that is it's simply not biblical because Paul's gonna lay it all out. What is biblical? All those who live godly in Christ Jesus will never have problems. <laughs> that's not what the scripture says, does it? All who live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Suffer persecution. So how does Paul address this lukewarm, prosperous church? He says, let me tell you what the Bible teaches on the subject of the pre-trib rapture. And that's what Paul is gonna take us through. So I'm gonna take you to some of the chapters where Paul tells us what he went through and what it created in him. And we'll go to Philippians when we'll read it. He says, I'm torn. I, I wanna be with the Lord. We'll be going to Lot too. Um, his righteous soul was vexed, but he was taken out before judgment would, would come. I live in a world, I turn on the news, and I can't believe what I'm hearing. And it vexes my soul. But having said that, I don't lose heart. Well, why don't I lose heart? Because I know something. I know that God has promised that he is going to take us out of here before the tribulation starts. And that is the blessed hope. But up until that time, he tells and makes it very, very clear that if you're going to live for Christ, you are going to suffer. You're not going to be liked. You're going to be marginalized. Every week that goes by, are we not more and more marginalized worldwide? And um, so we'll talk about that, the blessed hope of the rapture. And then the third division is what leads up to because Jesus told us to watch when it came to the rapture of the church. For certain events that would be taking place in the world. So I'd like to do a a prophecy update on current events showing just how close we are to the blessed hope of the pre-trib rapture. I mean, even things that happened this morning and happened this week, since I was here last week, have major prophetic references to how late I believe it really is. But before we do that, 
Let's look at the first seven verses. It's one of the places where I get the title, Do Not Lose Heart. But let's look at the first seven verses that lead up to our text. Verse one, therefore, since we have this ministry, we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Here we have another facet of God's comfort. We have seen God's comfort for life's plans in chapter one. Then in chapter two, it was God's comfort in restoring a sinning saints. Chapter three shows God's comfort in the glorious ministry of Christ. And now we see God's comfort in the ministry of suffering for Christ. And um, that's where I got the title of this. This will be repeated. It begins with, do not lose heart. And the chapter ends with, do not lose heart. So, verse one, we do not lose heart because, verse seven tells us, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And he talks about, in two, renouncing um, the things of shame, like we read this morning. I've hidden your word in my heart, Lord, so I don't sin against you. We've renounced those things. Doesn't mean we're not tempted by them. One of the songs that we sang this morning dealt with um, help us, Lord, when we're tempted by our adversary. Uh, not one person that I'm speaking to here or live stream wakes up in the spirit. Not one. You wake up in the flesh. <laughs> Usually thinking, where's my cup of coffee or something like that. And um, we have to die to ourselves daily. And like I like to say, the problem with dying daily is it's so daily. You gotta do it all the time. Because if you don't, you're gonna gravitate towards the things of the flesh, which the Corinthians were prone to do. So we find Paul now addressing this, that you need to turn away from those things. Verse three, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this world has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then he tells us, um, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Last Saturday, a men's prayer, we were in Jeremiah, and we read about the potter. And uh, Jeremiah, the Lord says to Jeremiah, see that potter over there, Jeremiah? Uh, he's baking something on the, the table. And he says, can't the Lord do that with you? Are you flexible enough? Are you yielded enough for him to conform you into his image? Uh, when it gets hard and brittle, uh, brittle and uh, no longer pliable, it breaks. And um, it's good for nothing. So here we have this treasure. What treasure? Well, God's Holy Spirit dwelling in us, this earthen vessel. What were we made out of? 
Well, men were made out of the dust of the earth. Um, Sometimes we forget that wasn't the case with women. Uh, God created Eve out of the rib of Adam. It was the man who was created out of the dust of the earth, earthen vessels. That the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. That's another way of saying when the Lord uses you, like Scott was telling you this morning and Paul followed up on it very well, just make yourself available. And God will use you as a vessel because he lives inside of you. It's availability that's important. It's like Isaiah, and the Lord appeared to him. Well, he was blown away. Uh, I believe, this is a little sidetrack here, I believe really true humility and being humble can only really happen when you're conscious of the presence of God in your life. Good place for an amen. The example is Isaiah. Behold, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his glory filled the temple. And then I said, oh no, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live a bunch, among a bunch of unclean people. Woe is me. And an angel came over and took some coals from the altar and touched his tongue. And he says, your sin has been put away for now. Why? It had to be. He's in the presence of the living God. And it was real humi- humility that was being expressed because of his consciousness and awareness. And here it is for us in verse seven. We have this treasure, the precious Holy Spirit of God living inside these tents. When I read, we'll be, I told the people yesterday at the funeral, next Sunday, we're gonna be in 2 Corinthians 5. And I'll be referring to it this, this morning when um, uh, we, we talk about what happens immediately after a person dies if they're born again. I'll tell it now in case I forget later, which at my age is very possible. I just forgot what I was gonna say. <laughs> It'll come back to me, just wait a second. Second Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's a very important verse to understand when we talk about the rapture. Okay, so we'll get get to that a little bit later. So that brings us to our text where Paul now is just gonna let, let the rubber hit the road and he's gonna tell from his own personal experience what it's like to walk as a, as a Christian. And what I'm gonna share with you is not exhaustive. This is a, only a partial list of Paul's trials and sufferings for the Lord. And so we read, we are, 8 through 12, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of our Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For he who lives are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then, death is working in us, but life in you. Paul's basically, and he's gonna repeat this a little later. He said, I'd rather be with the Lord, but it's more necessary that I be with here for your sake. 
And, but he said, if I had a choice, <laughs> I'd rather be with the Lord. And so he's explaining to them that he's going through, he's willing to go through the tough times. If it means making a difference in somebody else's life for the Lord. And he doesn't care what the trial is. If it means that the seed that you sowed, as the Bible says, does not return void. Whenever you get a chance to share scripture, know this. Always pray, Lord, don't let that, make it be like a broken record when he goes to bed tonight. That it goes round and around, that's all. Don't give him any sleep, don't give him any rest. And the grandma used to tell some of my old friends that I was praying for him. And they said, well, thanks. I said, well, I was praying that you'd be broken to your knees, that you'd lose all your money and you'd come to your senses. <laughs> well, that kind of prayer, huh? Yeah. Pray for people to come to the end of themselves. Yesterday, I used Job as an example. Job didn't ask the tough questions until he lost his seven sons and three daughters. All his possessions, his health. He wasn't asking the important question. But when he was down, when he was broken, that's when he said, if a man dies, will he live again? And um, that answer wasn't given until Jesus came. He's the only one who addressed that specific question. So as we look here, we're going to now depart from Second Corinthians and look at, so just like I said, this is not gonna be exhaustive. It's a partial list of some of the stuff that Paul went through. Let's begin by looking at Acts chapter 16, verses 16 um, to 25. We read in verse 16, now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination menace, the first Dion Warwick right here, who brought her master much profit by fortune telling. In other words, she was possessed with a demon that could foretell future events. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days, but Paul became greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus to come out of her, and he came out that very hour. You know how I'm often saying that when I'm reading something, I, I'll say something like, well, I never saw that before. Well, I was reading this, studying this week. I, when I read this verse, and he came out that very hour, that I'd never seen before, or never thought about it anyway. And what it told me is, when you think about the angelic realm, you'll never have a reference to a female angel. They're always male. When you go back to Genesis 6, remember one of the reasons they were enticed is because of the beauty of the women. There are no women angels. He is the reference to here. He, the male demon, the familiar spirit, came out of her, but when her master, these were the guys that were pimping her out and taking advantage of her, using her gift to get money, but when her master saw that there was, their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace to the authorities and they brought them to the magistrates and said, these men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. 
and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Then the multitudes rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. But when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, let me just tell you something about being a Roman guard and pointing the finger at this guy, and it says they charged him, um, make sure that these guys don't get away. Because if they would have escaped, that Roman guard would have taken their place. And so he's making really sure he doesn't get himself in trouble, and he throws them into the inner prison, shackles them up. All right, so now they're beaten up, shackled up, and um, what would your attitude be? If you're beaten up and shaken up. Well, some of us would be complaining and whining, Lord, I was just serving you and trying to do the best I could. I got beat up and thrown in prison. And What about Paul and Silas, verse 25? But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing songs to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. That's what sticks out to me. Do you know that every time you go through something, as a believer, people are watching. How are you going to handle it? Let's watch him. Claims to be a Christian. He just went through this. He just lost his job. He just got really sick. Where's your God now? And people are wondering how you're going to handle it. Well, how did Paul and Silas handle it? Well, they had a prayer meeting, and they began to sing, How Great Thou Art. (laughs) I don't know if it was written yet. No, it wasn't. But, you know, all the psalms are songs, right? Did you know most of them are all put to music? Put to music with a ten-string instrument. So they were probably singing one of the the psalms. Could have been Psalm 119. That would have been a long psalm. (laughs) And... And the prisoners were listening to them. This had to blow the prisoner's mind. These guys just got the snot beat out of them and thrown into prison in shackles, and they're singing songs. What do they have that we don't have? We're not singing songs. And so first application here as we talk about suffering. Don't lose heart. Yes, you will go through difficult times. But remember, God's word says he's going to work some things together for your good. You going to let me get away with that? No, he's going to work all things out together for your good. We're going to see a prayer in just a little bit that wasn't answered by Paul. God always doesn't answer your prayer because he's got other things in mind. And so we know that he works all all things together for good, even though you may not perceive it at the time to be good. Just the opposite. You know, you think of Joseph. His brothers betrayed him, sold him, got accused of rape, got thrown in jail. And we went through all these trials. I got a a series when we went through Joseph called From the Pit to the Pinnacle. But he was raised up because he could interpret dreams 
and he interpreted the Pharaoh's dream and he became number two man in the world. And his brothers that betrayed him and threw him in the pit, they don't recognize him when there's a famine in the land. They have to come and stand before Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph. And long story short, he pulls him aside. He says, look, you guys meant this for evil. You didn't like me. You were jealous because dad likes me best. He didn't say that, but that's what he was implying. And when he said that, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good so that all these people would be saved. And it all would have happened if you would have thrown me in that pit way back there in Canaan. So we find here, suddenly there was a great earthquake, verse 26, so that the foundation of the prisons were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everybody's chains were loosed. And um, that had to blow their minds. And the keeper of the prison, awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Why? The consequences for them getting away, he would have had to take their place. But Paul called out with a loud voice saying, don't harm yourself, we're still here. Then they called for a light, ran in, fell down trembling before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, sir, what must I do to be saved? Did Paul and Silas make an impression on on this? Not only they were praying and singing, but as a result of their prayers was a great earthquake, and they just happened to have their shackles fall off, the doors that were locked just happened to open up. And he asked the question, this is a Philippian jailer, and here's the answer, if you're not saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. I have to clarify this. This was the case in this man's situation that Paul already knew. And uh, his household was saved And we read in verse 33, and immediately he and his family were baptized. But um, it has to be an individual choice. Just because mom and dad are saved, it's not saying here that the rest of your household will be saved. Okay, let's go to another example. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. And here we find Paul in verse 23 talking about some of the things that he had gone through with his suffering. Verse 23 of chapter 11, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool, I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, he had just gotten those stripes, above measure. In prisons, more frequently In deaths, often. From the Jews' time, I received 40 stripes minus one. Now, in my Bible, there's a cross-reference that says Deuteronomy 25, verse three. And I run through this morning, and this is what it says. It says, when you're punishing somebody, you give them 40 stripes minus one. So, why did... It says the Jews here, so part of the restrictions in the law is you could not give a guy 
40 stripes. So every time you whacked them, you, had, you were counting. And you didn't go past 39 in case you counted wrong and you actually broke the law by giving them 40. And if you want to look that up later, it stood around 20, 25 verse 3. They did that to our Lord, didn't they? The 40 stripes minus one. Well, Paul, it happened five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. One of them we just read about, Philippian jailer. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false believers, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fasting often, in cold and in nakedness, and besides all these other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for the church. And Paul is having his best life now. <laughs> Who's he talking to? Who's his audience? People that aren't used to this. And he's trying to explain to them what it really is about if you're gonna pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Crucifixion was the cruelest form of capital punishment that the Romans came up with. And it was purposely, most crucifixions took place alongside the road. So that those going by say, you better look up, better see what this guy is going through so that you don't repeat the same mistake that he did. And so Paul goes through this list here in 2 Corinthians 11 of all these perils that he went to. Go to um, chapter 12, and uh, we have in the first six verses here that um, Paul said he knew a man about uh, 14 years ago, whether out of the body I don't know or in the body. When you go back 14 years, it was when Paul got stoned and they left him for dead. And so he probably actually could have died. But he was taken to the third heaven, and he said he, he heard things um, that is not lawful for a man. Um, in verse four, for a man to utter. He said, I heard things in heaven that are beyond anything that this man can put into words. Can't do it. And then he goes on to explain, because the revelation was so miraculous and so wonderful, he saw heaven, <laughs> I remember Pastor Chuck telling us one time at a conference that if he ever has a heart attack and dies and somebody comes up to him with those pads and puts them on and bring him back to life, the first thing he's going to get is this. <laughs> Believe me, if you get one glimpse of heaven, the things of this world are going to grow strangely dim and you're not going to want to be here anymore. I think one of the things that's going on right now with all the heaviness and all the weight and all the trials and is it really wants to let me let go of anything down here. Lord, I am ready. My body won't let me do what I used to do. And um, I'm, I'm like Lot. I see what's going on in the schools. I see what's going on in our society. I see where it's all headed. 
there's actually people out there that think this is all going to turn around. No, a financial collapse is coming. It's inevitable. And there are a lot of radio hosts right now that call themselves Christians. They do not understand the rapture. I don't think the rapture can be talked about enough right now. And it's one of the reasons we're talking about the blessed hope. It causes us what? Not to lose heart. Because no matter how bad it gets, God's got a plan. It tells, he tells us he knows how to deliver the righteous out. So that's the blessed hope. So here we find that in verse seven, because of his trip to heaven, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Stop, pause. Need to get a couple things straight here. This is a demon. He's allowed not to possess Paul, but to hassle Paul. If you would excuse my 60 verbiage here. (laughs) And we don't know what the buffeting actually was, but Paul didn't like it, whatever it was. Unless I be exalted above measure, this was meant to keep Paul humble. Why? He just got back from heaven. I mean, he could sell a lot of books. <laughs> now, concerning these things, I pleaded with the Lord three times, underline the word plead, that it might depart from me. And he said to me, after the third time, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. This is what the Corinthian church needed to hear. Your strength isn't in the amount of money you have in your IRA or your bank account or your possessions. Those things are temporal like we read earlier. They're passing away. And what I want to point out here is God did not answer his prayer. He said, no, I got a reason for allowing you to go through what you're going through. So after the Lord speaks to him, Paul says, okay. He just needed to hear from the Lord. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast of my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities. I'll be honest with you. I can't say that with an honest heart. I would like to be like Paul and say that. Um, In reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distress for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's sword in the flesh. Don't know what it was. Some speculate it was his eye vision. And, but it's only speculation. And your speculation is just as good as anybody else's speculation. Paul could say, none of these things move me. And he does. All the stuff that has happened in his life, none of these things move me. I'm not going to lose heart because of trials. I'm not going to lose heart because of difficulties. And um, I'll just turn to this one in Philippians and reading verses 21 through 24 because Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How many of you are looking forward to dying? Honestly, just think about it. I wasn't expecting hands, but... (laughs) We can have ushers help help you with that if, if you want to. We got a great security team here. So, but Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's true. 
But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean more fruit for my labor, true. Yet I have chosen, I cannot tell. He's torn. He wants to be with the Lord, but he's torn. I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. As he's talking to the Corinthians, he says, guys, you got some things wrong here because of your wealth and your, and your, um, your easiness with life. It's not that way. But it was needful for Paul to write the letter in 1 Corinthians, the guy that was sleeping around and everybody in the church knew about it. Nobody was doing nothing about it. He had to rebuke him. And he said, I didn't like doing that. But he said it was necessary because the man that was sleeping around was being leavened. You girls who still make bread, you, you know, you put the, the yeast in so it permeates the whole loaf and it gets risen up. And, uh, but Paul wrestled with this. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. So he's basically saying, Lord, your will be done. At this time, I'm gonna switch gears. We've started out with, with um, Paul's trials and suffering. Again, this is not exhaustive by any means. Just read the book of Acts and you can see what Paul went through. I want to talk now about the blessed hope, which uh, needs to be talked about more and more as we see that day approaching. So let's go to John chapter 14. Jesus is gonna talk about it in Matthew 24. We'll get there too, but... One of the first places that uh, Jesus himself talks about the rapture is in John 14. Um, I'll read just the first verse where it says, let not your hearts be troubled. And I put a period there and underlined in trouble and wrote above it, do not lose heart. That would be another way of saying, do not lose heart. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Now, this is a rapture verse because usually I put a chart up at this point. I'll be putting up some charts later. The difference between the second coming and the rapture is we go to meet him in the air. The second coming is he comes with us back to this earth. Here he's talking about I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am you may be also and where I go you know the way. So here he's telling him don't lose heart. Paul's first mention of the rapture is in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. So let's turn there quickly and looking at verses 51 through 59 behold I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep as I was speaking at the funeral yesterday we were in John 11 and the Lord was telling his disciples that Lazarus was asleep and I said, well, that's good, he's sleeping. He's not feeling well, he's, he should be sleeping. And then I told him, no, the Lord came out directly and said, Lazarus is dead, and I go there to wake him. 
But he says we shall not all sleep is interpreted we shall not all die. In other words, there's going to be a generation. From the beginning, man has lived so long. Methuselah was the oldest, 960-something years old. But that's inevitable that everybody will die. It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. So much for reincarnation. Anybody that's thinking about that along those lines, you don't get it right the first time, well, you come back, try it again. But we shall all be changed. The Greek word there is metamorphosis. It's what a caterpillar glows through. He spins his little cocoon or whatever you call his, his little home. And then after billions and billions and billions of years, he comes out a butterfly. No, this metamorphosis happens in two weeks. Little furry thing, just crawls around on earth. Two weeks later, he comes out with this beautiful body where all he can do is fly around and mate. Sounds like a good job to me. (laughs) And... Then in the wintertime, they all end up on the same mountain outside of Mexico City. How do they know how to get there? It's all implanted. Fearfully and wonderfully made comes to mind. And in his creation, the wonders of creation, again, get God of wonders, look at it again, get blessed, and then give it to somebody else. The evidence is overwhelming. And the butterfly, the monarch in particular, is one of the examples that is used there. So the word there is we're going to also be changed. Same word. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. How fast is that? Pretty fast. At the last trump, the trump will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. And Paul says, let's get it on. O death, where's your sting? O grave, where's your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Don't lose heart. We have a blessed hope with all that's going on. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, another rapture passage that talks about the rapture of the church. Paul is writing this letter. Somebody asked me about this uh, actually just last week because it does seem to contradict itself. And it's in the translation where the problem is, and I'll explain it when we get there. And when you have confusion and you're wondering about something and you're not absolutely sure about it, then you go to other scriptures that will clarify and bring to light what just is exactly being said. And this is one of them right here that we'll look at. Let's pick it up in verse 13. Um, Chapter four. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, 
lest you sorrow as other who have no hope. Now again, in case I forget, next week we're in 2 Corinthians 5. In that verse, we're going to read, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Is that pretty clear? It means there's an instant translation. When you're absent from the body, then you're present with the Lord. In the first five verses before, it talks about this tent being destroyed. That's all this is. This isn't you. That's your skin on your arm. In fact, I burned it on the fireplace last night. <laughs> Just grabbed that spot. It reminded me. And um, that's not you. And again, I shared this at the funeral yesterday. You're a spirit. You have a soul. Second Corinthians 5 calls this a tent. It's temporal. But he goes on to explain that he's created for us a body that's eternal, that'll never pass away and never die. And then it goes on to say, therefore, to be absent from the tent is to be present with the Lord. It's an instantaneous translation. Everybody with me? Because it's gonna seem to contradict here in just a bit. Verse 14, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So now we talk about the multitude coming back with the Lord. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. And it should read, and the dead of Christ, to be absent from the body, this is where the confusion comes in, will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. So if you read 13 and 14, they're worried about their loved ones. Are they gonna go through the tribulation? No, they're gonna come back with the Lord when he comes back to take us up. And... um, Verse 18 says, because we have this hope to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord, verse 18 says, therefore scare one another to death with these words. No, we're not talking about it enough. Friends, this is a blessed hope. And yes, it's strange, but it's just as strange. We're gonna see, let's go to Matthew 24 at this time and and we'll... um, um, No, let's go to, we're closer to Revelation, so let me just point out the church of Philadelphia. Revelation chapter three. These are the seven letters to the seven churches. The church of Thyatira in chapter two had a problem that they weren't repenting of. And the Lord, it was false doctrine that was teaching another gospel. And in verse 22, he says, unless we repent, I'm gonna cast you and your children um, Let me find it here. Verse 22, he tells them in chapter two, I will cast her to a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. That's literally, um, they would go into a church that would actually go into the tribulation because they weren't born again. They were into traditions. um, Unless they repent of their deeds. So here's one church that's, Christian in name only. Now we have the Church of Philadelphia 
And if you look at verse 10 to this church, he says, because you've kept my command to persevere. In other words, they hung in there. They didn't lose heart. I will also keep you from the hour of trial which will come upon the whole world. What would possibly be able to come upon the whole world except the tribulation? And he's telling them that because they kept the word of God, did not compromise on the word of God, he tells them that I'm gonna keep you from that hour of trial. My question is, well, how are you gonna do that? The answer is the rapture of the church, taken out before. And in First Thessalonians 5, God has not appointed us to wrath. That's what the great tribulation is. Now we can turn to Matthew chapter 24. Very controversial. One of my favorite Bible studies I ever heard was by Dave Hunt at a pre-trib conference in Dallas with my good friend Tommy Ice. Um, If you graduated from Dallas, they will tell you that the rapture is not in the Olivet Discourse. So I was very interested when Dave's subject that he had to give his speech on was titled The Rapture in Matthew chapter 24. I was there and you could have heard a pin drop. And then whenever they present their position, Everybody has the notes, and it was such an interesting Q&A after that Bible study, because a lot of them, you know, we got some things to think through here, because Dave knocked it out of the ballpark. The rapture is in Matthew chapter 24, and right past the parable of the fig tree where it says when Israel's regathered that all Bible prophecy is gonna be fulfilled, We read, but of that day and hour no one knows, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. What? What don't we know? Well, we know to the day, because of Daniel, that Jesus came. We know because of Daniel 12, the very day that he's gonna come back. It'll be 1,290 days after the abomination of desolation. I can tell you that categorically. We know the day of his first coming. We know the day of his second coming. What don't we know? The day of the rapture. It's gonna come like unexpected, but he gives us something to think about and he points us back to Noah. We read, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. This cannot be the second coming. Why? Because Jesus said, unless I return, no flesh is gonna be saved. It's gonna be that bad. What we're reading here is people are planning on getting married and doing everyday life as normal. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. Now, some, and one reason this is not being taught, it's no longer being taught in our major Bible colleges Uh, around the country. Um, I think a lot of people are embarrassed to be talking about something that is so far out. Yes, I use the word far out. And as somebody just walking, all of a sudden they're there, and then all of a sudden they're not there. That's crazy talk to uh, the average person who's not born again. Well, listen, it's no more crazy 
than an old man building a boat out in the middle of the desert telling people it's going to rain. It had never rained before. Don't, don't you remember the rainbow at the end? Yeah, so here's Noah. Well, judge was coming. Better get your act together. You know how many converts he had in 120 years? Zero. He made his family go to church, so they, they got saved. So we're going to go back there and look at it, but I want to point out here that Jesus likens the rapture of the church to Noah, and we'll, we'll see why in just a second. And did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, the other left. All right, let's stop. Larry Norman is an early Jesus movement singer-songwriter. He wrote a song called, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. It's a classic. And one of the lines in it, don't worry, I'm not going to sing, is a man and wife asleep in bed. She hears a noise and turns her head, and he's gone. I wish we'd all been ready. And that's the chorus of the song. And that's really going to happen. There's husbands who know the Lord that are going to be taken, wife left behind. There's wives who know the Lord, husband doesn't. She'll be taken, he'll be left behind. I wish we'd all been ready. People who don't believe in the rapture and know about it now, I know people that have written letters and says do not open until after the rapture because they wouldn't listen to it now, but they'll listen to it when it happens. Watch therefore, well watch for what? Well this is what we're gonna close up by looking at some of the current events that are going on. Watch therefore you do not know the hour that your Lord is coming, but know this, if the master would have known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. Let's go back to Genesis chapter five and look at Noah. Seeing that the Lord is the one who directed us as an analogy to compare to it. In Genesis five, verse 24, before Noah, we have an Old Testament picture of the rapture. It's Enoch, chapter five, verse 24. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. What what does that mean? Well, it means exactly what it says. He walked with God and God took him. Then when we're introduced to Noah in chapter six, verse five, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. How are we saved? By grace, through faith? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And we read in uh, chapter six, verse eight, and we've done that one. Let's go to chapter seven and look at verse 11. And we find that Noah entered the ark and that uh, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month and the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened and the rain was on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. So it wasn't just the water that came down from above but was the great fountains underneath that burst open that flooded the earth. And so we read that verse 16, so 
Those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God had commanded him and the Lord shut him in. The Lord's the one that shut the door. Now the flood was on the earth for 40 days. The waters receded, increased and lifted up the ark and rose above the earth. And um, so here's the analogy. If the Lord is using Noah as an example, as a picture, what do we see? We see the ark as a means of salvation. And if you're in the ark, you're saved. What happens? You go up, judgment is done, and then they come back down. What happens at the rapture of the church? If we're in Christ, in the ark, and I'll give you scriptures to validate that here in a second. If we're in Christ, we get taken up, judgment is done, and then we come back down. Same analogy. Same with Lot. Lot was, judgment could not fall on Sodom and Gomorrah until Lot was out. And the angel said, you gotta get out of Dodge because we can't do anything unless you're out of here. And um, if you're taking notes, well, I'll get to that in just a little bit. If you look at chapter eight, I made mention that I believe Jesus is a type of the ark. And what's interesting about this, it says that the ark rested in the seventh month of the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. It's there to this day. And what's interesting to me is why give us the date? It would be the 17th of Nisan. And you say, so? What's so important about the 17th of Nisan? Well, you see, it's three days after the 14th of Nisan. Well, what's the 14th of Nisan? Passover, when Jesus was crucified on the 14th of Nisan. Anything of significance happened three days later? Only the most important event of world history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the 17th of Nisan. Why does it tell us that back here? If he's using this analogy of Jesus, giving us to the very day. He rested, the work is over. What did he say on the cross? It is finished, work done. Now whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, they'll be saved. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 26, which to me is one of the most incredible prophecies in the Bible. It's just thrown in, it's a uh, song about Israel. But in verse 19 we read, your dead shall live, together with my dead body they shall arise, Awaken, saying, all you who dwell on the earth, for your dew is like the dew of the herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. And then it says, come, my people, enter your chambers. Well, what did we just read in John 14? I go to prepare a chamber for you. I just replaced the word chamber with a place. Come, my people, enter your chamber, and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourself as it was for a little moment, you won't be there long. How long? Seven years. In, in, in light of time from the beginning of Adam and Eve, um, that is a relatively short period of time. Just a little while, just seven years, until the indignation is passed. 
The word indignation is another word used for the great tribulation. It's also called the time of Jacob's trouble. But here's indignation. What's, why? Why are they doing this? Well, we read the answer, for behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will be more covered her slain. We have a, a beautiful picture here. Take it up into your chambers. Why? Stay there a little while. You'll only be there seven years. I'm going to go take care of business on earth. This is the Battle of Armageddon. And um, then um, they come back out of their place and um, the millennium will have been established. So the question begs, that's all we're talking about with the rapture from here, how close are we? I would like to close with some updates in the Middle East that just happened this week. And matter of fact, this is what happened this morning. I was watching, Googling Fox News. This morning, Biden lifted civil sanctions on Iran's nuclear program. Now you heard me, this morning. That happened this morning. Putin's in China as I speak, right now. Um, Bloomberg made a false report, said the war's already begun in Ukraine, and he should have said it, but he said it anyway. So go to Ezekiel chapter 38, and the reason we're closing with this is you can ask my wife, I got out the door and I kicked myself all the way home because one of the most important points I want to make, I didn't make, so I'm revisiting it this week. Um, The main countries with this next invasion, we are living between chapter 37 and 38. 37 is the regathering of the nation of Israel. They're there. 38 is a war. And I forgot to mention this. I said it once in a study, but I'm going to say it again right now. This war right here is going to be a time where God is the only one that's doing the fighting. This has, not, this has happened twice in history. Once during the plagues in Egypt, And that happened when he delivered them out of Egypt, the 10 plagues. God did that. No man was involved with it. Charles the Destin was only an instrument, okay? And then, it has never happened since then. God has protected them, but he's always used men or his military to do so. Not in Ezekiel 38 and 9 war. God is the only one who's doing it. But he begins by saying, these are the three key, key people nations that he's against. In verse one, it's Magog, Meshach and Tubal. Tubal's a city actually in Russia, Tubalski. And so what we have here is Russia as a main game player in this scenario, along with, we read, Persia, which is now modern-day Iran, and um, Turkey, where Erdogan is, uh, and there's other names that are mentioned there. Now, I'm going to put something on the screen of Russia already being in Israel. So what you're looking at right here, i got to get my... This is a Russian airbase in Syria. Well, what is a Russian airbase doing in Syria? It's called Ma Me Mim. Hope I'm saying that right. Airbase was built in the mid 
15 adjacent to the Al-Assad International Airport to serve as a strategic center for Russian military intervention in the Syrian civil war. The existence of the Russian strategic base was revealed by the United States in early September and American officials expressed concern over the possibility of escalation of the conflict in Syria. The airbase became operational on September 30th, 2015. We have boots on the ground right now, and that airport um, exists. Um, the second Iranian cargo plane in the last two weeks landed at this particular airbase. In other words, Russia is allowing Iran, who ordinarily would ship their uh, military machinery to help Hezbollah, um, they don't have to go across. Russia is allowing Iran to allow land within the last two weeks at this military airbase. According to the newspaper, in this way, Iran guarantees the uninterrupted supply to military units stationed in Syria without fear of attack of the Israeli Air Force. Um, who's, it names all those who are involved here, but if you go to verse 13, what's interesting to me, it tells us who's not involved. That's a Muslim country. And that is Sheba and Dedan. Well, Sheba and Dedan are cities that exist in Saudi Arabia, and um, they're not, not only not involved, but they're asking a question. Have you come to take plunder? Have you come to gather your armor to t- take booty? I'm gonna put a picture up of the, um, um, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salam, and the, that's the title, but the title above it tells us bringing Saudi Arabia into the Abraham Accord, a strategic goal for the U.S. and Israel, along with a United Arab Emirate. So what this is telling us is telling us that this goes right along with Ezekiel 38. Um, the difference between Iran and Saudi Arabia is 87% of Muslims Are you familiar with the terminology Shiites and Sunnis? Two different groups. And we find that the majority, 87% of Muslims are Sunnis. They are the majority in Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia. They're the 87%. The Shiites are the majority in Iran. Um, They hate Israel, Iran does, but they hate Saudi Arabia even more because during the Gulf War, they allowed our planes to land in Saudi Arabia. And um, were instrumental in actually helping overthrow Iraq at that time. So his name is Mohammed bin Salam. And uh, they're hoping to bring him into the Abraham Accord. You can do your own homework on that one. Just this last week, between this Sunday and last Sunday, or was it a week before, I'm gonna put a Russian military instrument on the screen next and explain it to you. This was in the news bites on Wednesday night. And I'm gonna read this particular article. 
why is Russia using Jamir to interfere with Israeli civilian flights? As war draws closer between Russia and Ukraine, Putin's action in the Middle East show why any war between Russia and any other country is more than just regional. In other words, not just Russia and Ukraine. They're looking at the Middle East right now with Russia. Russia has been engaging in spoofing, which is a form of electronic warfare designed to trick a plane's GPS into thinking it's elsewhere. Although the problem is not new, with Israel complaining about it in 2019, the recent uptick in jamming issues has caused problems of civilian aircraft trying to land at Ben Gurion National Airport in Israel. Most believe Russia is spoofing for another reason, with Israel being caught up as collateral. However, with Israel increasing its attacks inside Syria, it appears that the recent resurgence of the problem may be tied to Russia's view that such attack needs to be deterred. Just the other day, now this was written February 2nd, 2022. Just the other day, Israeli carried out airstrikes just outside of Damascus. Now for those of you who know your Bible prophecy, that should perk your ears big time. Because it's a prophecy saying that Damascus is going to be destroyed. Well, why is Russia there in the first place? They're supposed to be be protecting Assad. And where's Assad? He's in Damascus. It's never been destroyed, but now they're talking about carrying out airstrikes just outside of Damascus. And I... People that won't listen to me, I say, okay, you're not, you're not listening to me now. But will you listen to me when Damascus is destroyed? Will you listen then? Because that's what I think is going to happen next. And that's how close I think we are right now. If Russia doesn't intervene, I have come to the conclusion that this is the hook. It says in verse 1, the Lord's going to put a hook into Russia and draw them into something that they really don't want to be a part of. I like to use an analogy for you fishermen here. You ever hook a fish? Start reeling them in? Is he excited to get in your boat? Uh-uh, he wants to go the other way. He's off running. So that's exactly what the scripture is saying here. Puts a hook in. He brings him down and Russia's forced to do something it really doesn't want to do. So he's got problems up in Ukraine. By the way, the other thing that just happened that I gotta get a second, that just happened this week Putin's been talking to the NATO countries around Russia. Hungary declared yesterday, this is yesterday, you have to have a consensus with the NATO members before Ukraine can become NATO. Hungary just put the kibosh on that. I'm still looking for a second response on that because if it's true, that means the Ukraine cannot become part of NATO. And in my own personal research, I've been finding out that Putin and his administration have been going around and talking to these weaker NATO members that surround Russia. I gotta be careful, I get too sidetracked. Let's wrap this up here. Just the other day, okay, we read that. The attacks marked the first time Israel launched an attack in Syria since the Russian forces said it would carry out joint patrols with the Syrian Air Force. Russian moves in the Middle East appear to be opening another front against the West. This is a direct connection with the pending war with Ukraine. 
Putin sees Ukraine as an extension of NATO. It is his aim to crush the, the intelligence eastward expansion. In the same vein, he wants to push back on Israel's growing geopolitical influences, uh, whether that is uh, east to Dubai or west towards Greece. Putin's strategy to have Russia and Russia alone control the oil and gas line to Europe. By doing so, he holds onto Russia's growing um, authority. Israel discovered the largest, one of the largest natural gas resources in the world. It is currently building a pipeline through Crete into Italy, into Europe, to supply Europe with natural gas. Russia is the only one that's been doing that and is threatened in this war to turn off the gas if they don't get serious with him talking about this problem with NATO in the Ukraine. So they have alternative motives for being involved with this, with this oil or this natural gas being. I know this man, I'm gonna play a video, don't get upset, it's one minute and 30 seconds long, okay? His name is Barry Siegel. I know him, I've stayed in his house, he has a daily program in Israel. And so he is going to reiterate what I just said and um, he's a sweet brother and um, this is Barry Siegel on what we're talking about right now. One minute and 30 seconds. Israeli airstrike targets sites near Damascus. So why is this covert war going on between Syria, Iran, Israel and who knows who else is jumping in? Syrian air defenses were activated in response to an alleged Israeli missile barrage targeting the vicinity of the capital Damascus, northeast of Damascus, so happens, caused some material damage. A series of cargo flights on airlines used to transport Iranian weapons traveled between Iran and Syria recently. And so we know what's going on. Somebody knows out there what's happening. So the strike comes a week after Syrian and Russian military jets jointly patrolled the airspace along Syria's borders, including along the Golan Heights. And this is cause for concern because if we study in Ezekiel chapter 38, we see at some point God puts hooks into the jaws of these enemies of Israel and they decide to attack Israel. Who knows when? who, what, when, where, and why. We need to stay in prayer and stay vigilant. He pretty much summed it up very nicely. Um, go to chapter 39, verse 9. We'll read this one verse. This is what I kicked myself about going home all last week. After the war is over, the Lord is the one who fights the war. Then you have all of the military left over and it can be used for fuel, and in verse nine it says, those who dwell in the city will go out and set on fire and burn the weapons, both the shields and the bucklers, and bows and arrows, the javelins and the spears, and they will make fire with them for seven years. Isn't that an interesting time frame? Why, why would not eight? Because I believe after this war, what's gonna happen is rapture is gonna happen either before, immediately during, or immediately after. But I don't think we're here to see the Ezekiel 38-39 war. What's your point, Dwight? The hour's late. And unless we have Bible studies like this, and the Lord says, I want you to watch therefore, because no man knows the day of the hour. But what does he say in 1 Thessalonians 5? 
but you do know the times and the seasons. So wake up. Um, don't lose heart. And we'll hopefully end this on a positive note this morning by reading the last three verses of Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, where Paul giving a heavy Bible study on sufferings and trials, and this is really what the Christian life is all about, but don't lose heart. Therefore, do not lose heart. Even though the outward man is perishing, verse 16, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. I like this, Paul saying, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working in us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Can I say something in defense of going over longer than I usually do? And I usually go longer anyway. But, you know, don't you think it's the right time in a season to be sitting down and taking a little bit more in? and uh, getting as much absorbed as you can. Even though, especially maybe some of our um, new people that are visiting or watching online that are used to a 25-minute sermonette for what I, I call Christianettes. And they don't have a midi Bible study where you really get into the nitty-gritty. That what it's really about, and the biggest argument against the pre-trib rapture is that um, you guys aren't gonna experience any suffering. But if I would ask you, what does the Bible teach about the Christian and the pre-trib rapture? Well, what did Paul teach? All the suffering that he went through. And he calls it a light affliction in compared to what lies ahead, yes. And the glory that's gonna be there for us. So it's time to let go. You know, be responsible. Be the best worker you can. There's a lot of people that are going through a lot of troubles right now. We need help about our Sunday school. Make yourself available. Uh, help out where you can. But know this, when the Lord said to watch, I believe we are watching these events and I think Damascus is a major player. And I think if Damascus is taken out, I think Russia has no choice but to respond. And that's gonna start it all. And then the Lord's gonna end it all. And do not lose heart. Let's stand and we'll pray. Thank you for being patient and letting me go just a little bit longer. All right, a whole lot longer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for giving me that verse, Lord. The Apostle Paul did give a Bible study all night long and somebody fell asleep and fell out of the window (laughs) and died and Paul had to bring him back to life. Lord, if anybody died during the Bible study this morning, we just pray that they come back around. Now we do thank you for your Lord's, your word seriously, Lord, and that you have not hidden these things from us, but you've laid them out for us. And um, we thank you for the blessed hope. There are many times that many of us do feel like losing heart and giving up, but your word tells us that through these afflictions that we're not to lose heart. And um, just be re- being renewed day by day, we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.